The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Anyone who heard some of the threats that they had to live with and have continued to have to live with for more than three years now, anybody who listened to any of that uh, material that we played in court or, or read about read about any of it, I think, knows it's going to take time to repair uh, what they've been through. Uh, but, but we hope that what happened in December is a really good first step down that path. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, January 9th, 2024. Michael J. Gottlieb is a litigation partner at the Wilkie Law Firm. He is a longtime national security lawyer. He served in Barack Obama's White House Counsel's Office, and he used to be the civilian lead on a task force that built rule of law institutions in Afghanistan. He's had a bit of a career change recently. Late last year, he won a $148 million judgment against Rudy Giuliani on behalf of election workers Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman. He joined me in the virtual jungle studio to talk about the case, how he and the advocacy group Protect Democracy teamed up to use defamation law to fight disinformation and the big lie, what the use of defamation in this way can and cannot be expected to do, and how he went from building rule of law institutions in Afghanistan to representing people who have had their lives turned upside down by a toxic media ecosystem. It's the Lawfare Podcast, January 9th. Michael Gottlieb on that giant judgment against Rudy Giuliani. So I want to start with the question of how you came to be involved Everybody's starting with the judgment, which is admittedly dramatic. But how did you end up getting involved in the idea of suing Rudy Giuliani on behalf of Ruby Freeman and, and Shea Moss? So this case was one we brought in partnership with our friends over at Protect Democracy and a project that they established uh, not long before we brought this case called Law for Truth. Uh, that project was uh, one that we had been discussing with people like Ian Basson and others at Protect Democracy for some time. And it was a project that um, really came out of our, in part anyway, out of our experience in representing Seth Rich's family in some similar litigation a few years ago where Seth Rich had been accused of uh, being responsible for the stealing and 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 you know, theft of documents from the DNC and providing them to WikiLeaks. And reminder to listeners, Seth Rich was the DNC staffer who was uh, murdered uh, in a crime in D.C. unrelated to any political uh, matters uh, and became the subject of an enormous volume of conspiracy theorizing. Exactly. So we had uh, represented his family, and and actually I had represented James Alafontis and Comet Pingpong before that, during when they were being attacked as uh, running a child sex trafficking scheme out of the basement that does not exist. So uh, so I had been doing work similar to this for a while, and Protect Democracy, I think, you know, thankfully decided to stand up this project, Law for Truth, to take cases like this. 
and they uh, got in touch with uh, a lawyer who was representing Ruby Freeman and Shamos down in Atlanta, uh, interested in bringing some litigation. And so uh, we, just before Christmas of 2021, got together and put a complaint together and uh, sued a number of, of individuals, not just Rudy Giuliani, but, but sued some others in the lawsuit that, that wound up being just against Rudy Giuliani in the case that we took to trial in December. Right. So let me pause a minute, first of all, for a disclosure, which is that uh, Protect Democracy in its other iterations and projects does a lot of work or has done a lot of work with Lawfare, including representing us in any number of matters. And uh, we have had exactly zero involvement in this matter. Uh, and as the counsel who represented Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, um, Mike can actually verify that, that we have zero involvement in this matter. I, I can verify that. And uh, <laughs> you and I have not talked about this matter previously. Uh, so Right. Although we are old friends, and I actually want to explore an aspect of your past in relation to this case, which is because it interestingly tracks uh, some lawfare background in this space, which is uh, you're an old national security law hand. And uh, I think I first got to know you when you were the deputy, you were the civilian lead on a project of the US military in Afghanistan, building rule of law institutions around Afghanistan under General Martins. You know, somehow you've drifted into this space of representing election workers who've been defamed by the Trump campaign or, or or its operatives. And somehow that seems to me related conceptually to the way Lawfare, which used to do things exclusively like writing about people who were building rule of law institutions in Afghanistan, uh, now we spend a lot of time thinking about Trump litigation. And so there's some relationship between your professional trajectory and the stuff that we do here. And I'm just interested in sort of your personal story about it. Uh, how did you go from being a national security lawyer in, in, in the sort of hardcore sense of the word to being a... a a democracy protection through libel litigation lawyer. <laughs> it's so interesting, Ben. I think you're you might be the only person that that can draw draw that connection, at least in my career. Well, it, it could, but because it closely tracks the the development of my own career, and I'm curious whether your answer to the question is similar to the one that I would give if it were asked to me. So. I have to say that I, I arrived at it accidentally in the sense that I was, you know, I was interested in sort of law of democracy and political law in law school. And I worked in, you know, the intersection of politics and law in the White House counsel's office. And, and I, and I was interested in corruption. And when I was an AUSA, which I was for a very short time, I was thinking that I would go into public integrity or you know, sort of corruption-related work at that time. And when I did, um, I did some litigation uh, around the 2016 election. And in that litigation work, I started to notice sort of very firsthand the kind of disinformation campaigns that were targeting uh, polling locations, uh, you know, threats around polling locations and uh, threats uh, that would disrupt uh, just the ordinary functioning of democracy. And I sort of saw how ordinary people were being thrown into the mix of that. And my sort of distaste for bullies and my concerns about democracy sort of converged. And I then very shortly after that work started noticing the stuff about Seth Rich uh, and Pizzagate, which all sort of came out at the same time uh, and, you know, following the 2016 election. So I, I had had this sort of training in anti-corruption and rule of law development 
work in Afghanistan. I also had the detention side of it, which I don't draw upon much anymore, but, but at least the, you know, anti-corruption and rule of law development work. I mean, there was a lot of dealing with conspiracy theories, dealing with disinformation, dealing with faith and confidence in institutions, dealing with, you know, the, the trying to ascertain objective fact in fluid situations. And so I think a, a lot of the same things I was concerned about when we were working in 435 in Afghanistan applied in, in, a, in a different way, definitely, uh, but in a way that hit home uh, much, you know, that, that really hit home when you're talking about, you know, a local pizza restaurant on Connecticut Avenue or a kid from Nebraska. Seth Rich was a, a you know, a Jewish kid from Nebraska. I'm from Kansas. Um, that moved to DC to work in politics, and you know, then uh, we all know what happened to him. But but the, the, when I started to see the effect that this have had on Comet on Seth Rich, um, that just struck me in a way. It was more meaningful to me personally than some of the sort of abstract national security concepts that I'd been working on previously. And I thought, here is a place where I can use my legal training and can use the law to actually help defend some of these people who are being made victims of bullies in a way that's harming our democratic system. So I, I, I was attracted to these cases from the outset for that reason. Super interesting and actually not the answer I was expecting. Um, what were you expecting? <laughs> I was expecting you to say, because we all project our own experiences onto others. And since our experience, our, our trajectory is sort of similar here. I was expecting the rationale for it to be similar. I was expecting you to say, hey, look, I was over in Afghanistan trying to build up rule of law institutions to prevent the Taliban and Al-Qaeda from having a a, a, a meaningful long-term base there for purposes of, you know, attacking America. And uh, they've never been able to pull off anything like what, you know, in terms of damage to American society and democracy, they've never been able to pull off anything like what we are now experiencing at the hands of uh, domestic political actors. And so the same set of concerns that caused me to go into thinking about the law of dealing with foreign threats now has me uh, thinking about democracy protection and for very much the same reason. And that's my, you know, that's, that's my answer. So I assumed that would be your answer. Your answer is actually uh, much more uh, grounded in uh, the experience of real people. And, and it's, it's much more interestingly client driven, whether the client is my neighborhood pizza place, which I go to regularly uh, and doesn't have a basement, I've looked, uh, or whether it's, you know, Seth Rich's family, or in this case, uh, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. Well, I could I, I could tell you very briefly that, you know, the, the justice for whom I clerked, who um, I believe to have been the greatest justice, uh, John Paul Stevens, really believed in the human, the human aspect of the law and the, and the individual people touched by cases and in a um, ingrain that in us in our training. So the way I view the laws is is similar in thinking about how it you know in, in cases that we read and and study um, the individuals that are touched by them. So that that's that's always uh, at least for some time now been how I how I think about the law and my place in it. So let's talk about the people touched by the law. Um, I think there is a reason why the names Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, even among people who were not especially obsessed with January 6th and accountability and sort of the post-election uh, period, those names are are not ethereal. They're, they're, they're real people to, to a lot of people. And I think that has everything to do with their testimony at the January 6th committee. So let me start with for those for whom the names do not immediately evoke uh, the image of the January 6th hearings, who are they and uh, how are they doing right now? Yeah. So, you know, Ruby Freeman is Shay Moss's mother. They are lifelong residents of uh, Georgia, Atlanta, Georgia area. They both spent time you know, working as civil servants. Um, uh, Shay Moss 
essentially spent her entire career after leaving college, working in Fulton County elections, starting in the mailroom, um, and then working in absentee ballot processing. And then her mom volunteered to help uh, sort of a, a work in a part-time position during the 2020 election, which of course was in the midst of COVID. Uh, so you had this unprecedented amount of voting by mail and absentee voting and the election offices all across the country, but you know, in Fulton County as well, were just crushed uh, with the volume of uh, mail-in ballots and absentee ballots. So they are the heroes that make our democracy work, right? They are um, civil servants, uh, usually, and for most of our history, working out of the limelight for very little pay. And uh, so, so that's that's who Shay uh, Moss and, and Ruby Freeman are. They, you know, got into this whole story uh, because of some, a series of lies that were told about the two of them chiefly, uh, but also other people who were working at State Farm Arena in, in Fulton County on election night uh, when a, essentially a, a videotape there were cameras running uh, constantly in at State Farm Arena where ballots were being processed. And when a videotape of that sort of selective portions of it were released during a legislative hearing uh, in Georgia, where uh, the Trump legal team led by Rudy Giuliani were protesting the results of the election, that's sort of what started the disinformation and um, the social media platforms that Trump had at the time. And uh, Rudy Giuliani had access to through through the Trump campaign, through the president himself, through others, sort of rocketed those lies about um, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss to hundreds of millions of of people. So I want to I want to ask, you know, there were a lot of people, and I was one of who watched the, those hearings, who reacted with a really intense sense that race was playing an overwhelming role in the attacks on them. That is, the way Rudy Giuliani talked about them, the way they were talked about on Fox News, you know, I, he, he kept using the word, if memory serves, the word hustler to describe them. There was an implication that when one of them, I forget which, passed a, a, a ginger mint to the other, that this was being passed like a vial of cocaine. And the implication was that it was a USB or the statement was that it was a USB drive with votes on it. Does what happened to them happen if they had worked in a suburban county uh, and been white? Or was, or, or was this, in your estimation, this was basically a bunch of white people singled out a urban black jurisdiction with a bunch of black election workers who hadn't done anything wrong, but there was a, there was a cultural resonance uh, among the constituents of the speakers that these were people you could lay something on. So that's certainly what our clients testified to at trial under oath. Um, so, you know, one of the things that Ms. Moss testified about was the thing that she had the hardest time wrapping her head around was the assumption that everyone who was there working in State Farm Arena was a Democrat, right? It was just the, the assumption that, of course, all of these Black people in this location in Atlanta uh, were Democrats who wanted Joe Biden to win and wanted Donald Trump to lose. And so, of course, they would be involved in trying to steal the election. It's an interesting question whether, I mean, uh, hypothetically or counterfactually, if you think about if this had been a exact same video polling location in a sort of exurban, uh, mostly white part of Georgia, you know, would you have had even remotely the same kind of reaction to the these video clips, which really, when you watch them and you listen to Georgia state election officials' explanations of them, you understand there's really nothing irregular or unusual about what you see on these tapes. It's only if <laughs> if they're sort of, you know, put up on a screen by people who don't understand what is happening 
uh, and then uh, lies are told about what's happening on the tape that you think anything wrong is happening in them. I don't know the answer to that question. You know, I think there there are I think there are complex historical narratives layered in there. There's a distrust, of course, by many Republicans and especially Rudy Giuliani personally has a distrust of the way that urban cities count votes. I mean, he had, uh, I was refreshed on this as we prepared for trial, but you know, he has long complained that he lost his first mayoral election in New York uh, as a result of um, the Dinkins team essentially, uh, you know, rigging the vote count in mostly black neighborhoods in, uh, in parts of New York. So uh, there's a long history there for him that is part of it may be influenced by race, part of it may be influenced by this conflation of Democrats in urban areas as inherent cheaters in elections. Uh, but certainly the references to, you know, passing around vials of cocaine and casing the joint and crooks and criminals and there's a lot of language in there that I think many people view as coded or veiled references uh, that 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 do imply pretty gross racial stereotypes. I want to say that I think you're being generous um, in your which you know, like I, I I think the Giuliani comments about them, which I had not focused on at the time they were made because. Honestly, there was so much noise that 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 it really wasn't until the January sixth hearings where you know they were played, they were explained, they explained what was actually going on, just how shocking those statements were in their in their reckless disregard for the truth. Um, not that that's the relevant standard about private parties, but even if these were you know, public figures, which they weren't at the time. Uh, it's just a, a shockingly horrible way to talk about people without evidence. And I think the one of the reasons their story has been so compelling for a lot of people, including Liz Cheney, and is that, you know, they were not people like Brad Raffensperger, who ran for office and sort of not that he asked for what happened to him, but when you run for office, you put yourself in the line of fire and you do it knowingly. These were just election workers. And there's something there's something about treating just election workers like they are hustlers who are casing the joint and passing around vials of coke that is particularly ugly. I, I mean, I couldn't agree more with what you just said. One of the things that's so difficult for me to accept about all of this is how easily each little micro step of the lie is to disprove, right? And how little work it would have taken for any serious person who was interested in finding out what really happened to do that, right? So step one of the lie, I'll just give you one example rather than <laughs> going into it in detail, but you know, step one of the lie was that Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss made up a, fabricated a story about a water main break and, and used that to kick out all of the Republican uh, and, and other um, poll observers who were there at the time. So they make up a story about a water main break and they kick a bunch of people out. So Every aspect of that is wrong. Like they, they, they never made up a story about a water main break. There, there actually was a water leak earlier in the day, but that had nothing to do with what happened that night on election night. Um, and the observers were not kicked out. They left. And if anyone would have bothered to ask the Republican election observers who were there, who we found and we deposed in the case, if anybody would have bothered to ask them the question, were you kicked out? A State Farm Marine on election night, they would have said, no, we weren't kicked out. We left. And, and the story, you know, there's 15 other steps after that. And each one is the same. When you dig into any one of the steps, it's very, very easy to find an eyewitness or a record or a, a clip in the videotape, like at a precise time that shows you why what they're saying is wrong. And it was remarkable that they lied about this, that Giuliani and his whole team lied about this at the time. It is mind boggling that they continue 
to lie about it today, notwithstanding that all of this evidence has been put out into the public record. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills. It can help you be the best version of yourself. And it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then... Weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had Lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And Delete Me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web. And in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of 
But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Yeah, so let's, let's talk about that for those who... Uh, may be aware of the magnitude of the judgment, but who didn't follow the minutiae of the case. Just give us a little overview of the case as it progressed. You you filed a, a, a libel suit against Giuliani and a bunch of others, and the case against Giuliani alone went to trial in December. Uh, how did it get severed from the rest of the case uh, and end up in trial in in December. Yeah, so um, uh, try to do this as briefly as possible because it's a lot of procedure. But there were two lawsuits that were initially filed. One was against the Gateway Pundit and its founder in Missouri, and that case continues to this day. Our case was filed here in D.C., and that was against Rudy Giuliani, One American News, and then a number of individuals associated with One American News. The One American News part of the case settled out and that left uh, Giuliani alone in the DC case. He litigated the case for a while actively. He you know, filed a motion to dismiss. He showed up. He did the things that people who are going to litigate a case do. And then at some point during discovery, he sort of decided he was done participating. He, he wasn't interested in following the court's orders. And by the court's orders, what I mean is we had to go and get orders requiring him to produce documents to us uh, because he was refusing to produce documents to us. So we had to go into court and file these long motions, spend a ton of time um, and get orders saying, yes, in fact, you need to produce these documents to them. We had to do that with a bunch of third parties too, like Bernie Carrick and uh, Jenna Ellis and, and others. Once those orders came out, Giuliani essentially decided rather than actually going back and doing all that stuff, I'm just going to stipulate to liability. In other words, I'm going to agree that I'm not going to contest that I am liable for defamation, for intentional infliction of emotional distress and conspiracy. I'm going to let the court enter judgment against me for those things. And I'll just, you know, we'll have a hearing or a trial on, on damages. So that's how we got where we were. The court entered that judgment. We went to a trial on damages. And then the irony of all that is that after the trial didn't on damages didn't go the way that he wanted it to go, he then went out in public and started saying how unfair it was that the court had uh, entered judgment on liability and not allowed him to present his case, which is you know ironic since he stipulated the liability. And that was his strategy to get out of having to produce documents. So the magnitude of the judgment was $149 million, and it was entered remarkably quickly, which means that the the jury, I, you know, I don't want to make up their deliberations, but it means there was not a, a dispute among them that took time to resolve that this was really, really, really bad on his part and malicious. Well, one piece of that, one piece of that's not quite right. So the trial was essentially three days long and the jury 
did take some time to deliberate. We finished the case on we finished the case on a Thursday in the morning, I think, or around around lunchtime. Uh, and then the jury didn't come back with the verdict until the end of the day on Friday. So they did they did spend some time talking about it and thinking about it. So it's like a a, a day and a half. I think yeah, I think they were I think it was probably about one sort of full working day that they were that they were deliberating. I guess that 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 counts as fast by my book, but um, if you if you consider dollars dollars awarded per minutes of deliberation, it's it's a it's a. I just mean I just mean in comparison, if you think about how long the trial lasted, the the jury was. I see. Yeah. yeah no. Yeah. Fair point. So I guess a lot of listeners are saying, yeah, but how much? Given that he's bankrupt, they're never going to see any of this money. First of all. Does he have assets that are attachable for this purpose, uh, especially considering that he's in bankruptcy? And secondly, uh, what is the value of a judgment like this if you can't collect on it in substantial part? Can I start with the second question first? Please. That's what matters. So um, this case is not a case that we brought to make Ruby Freeman and Shamos rich. Yes, we very much want them to be compensated. They want to be compensated. But they never thought that, you know, one lawsuit against Rudy Giuliani was all they were going to have to do to be fairly compensated for what happened to them. And they have other litigation ongoing. I think the significance of the verdict and the size of the verdict is not tied to how what percentage of it they will collect. The significance of the verdict is tied to the message that it will send to others out there that have platforms like uh, Rudy Giuliani had and like um, his co-conspirator, former President Trump had. And the message that it sends to them is that when you have a platform that reaches 88 million, 100 million people and you tell just obvious lies and falsehoods about civil servants uh, and people who are out just doing their jobs uh, because it's convenient for you to do it because you think you're going to get away with it, you could get hit with a pretty steep judgment for doing that. And there are people willing to take up that fight. So to me, the significance of the size of the judgment starts with that. It starts with the message that it sends. And that, that is reflected in the jury's not just in the jury's, you know, evaluation of what the reputational damages were worth, right? So there was 16, 17 million dollars each in reputational damages alone, uh, which reflects that the reputational worth of these civil servants is not tied to their income bracket or whether they were, you know, had some multi-million dollar deal that they lost, but rather the harm that was done to them. So to me, that's where it starts. Now to answer the you know, the, the question about bankruptcy, this isn't the first time that someone has tried to uh, get out of a judgment like this through bankruptcy. Alex Jones has been trying to do this with the Sandy Hook families uh, for some time. And some of my colleagues at Wilkie Farr have been working with the uh, in that bankruptcy proceeding to help uh, collect and recover for the Sandy Hook families. So there is a playbook and precedent uh, for us to follow in pursuing uh, Giuliani's assets he does have assets. You know, he doesn't have $148 million in assets, but he does have assets. And, um, you know, our view is that this type of a uh, debt is not dischargeable in bankruptcy, meaning it's not the kind of debt that can be kind of wiped clean by the bankruptcy process because it involves intentional or willful conduct and, you know, really, really, essentially really, really bad acts of, uh, of the kind that you can't just wipe off the slate by declaring bankruptcy. It's not just regular debt. Right. It's uh it's what it's what what my bankruptcy colleagues would refer to as non-dischargeable, so it you, you can't just wipe it off the slate um, by filing for bankruptcy. So we do feel confident that you know it'll take a long time and it will be a lot of work, but we do feel confident that they will recover, you know, meaningful amounts of money out of this judgment and then uh, like I said they continue to have other litigation pending and if people uh, out there want to keep defaming them, you know, uh, I got time, Ben. <laughs> yeah. So let's, let's talk about that. And I want to 
ask a, a, a series of questions about the former president in relation to these guys. Um, the first is, has Donald Trump ever said anything about Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss? Uh, he said a lot about Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, uh, uh, especially Ruby Freeman. Uh, it, the, the most famous uh, statement of which was an issue in our case. It was his uh, call to Brad Raffensperger on January 2nd of 2021, where he, uh, that leaked famous sort of hour plus call uh, that was widely reported on. And he mentioned Ruby Freeman's name 18 times in that call. Uh, so he has. So he was president at the time, uh, which means he has a claim of immunity that is, uh, if applicable, absolute. But while you were litigating this case, the D.C. Circuit rather conveniently uh, handed down an interpretation of Nixon v. Fitzgerald, the immunity case, that says, hey, if you're acting in your capacity as a candidate, not in your acting in your capacity as a president, you don't benefit from Nixon v. Fitzgerald immunity. Uh, and one of the examples that they uh, use in this case is a, a, a series of issues uh, that, I mean, the, the specifics of the case are about the speech on January 6th, but there's a very clear line that the court, in an ideologically divided panel, by the way, draws between conduct in your capacity as president and conduct in your capacity as seeking the office of president. And so my my second question is, is Trump vulnerable to a lawsuit similar to the Giuliani lawsuit in light of the D.C. Circuit's opinion in Blassingame in a way that was not true in 2021 when you brought that litigation? Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, the law has has developed since we first filed this litigation. The former president has also said things about Ruby Freeman and Shamos since leaving office. That was going to be my next question. <laughs> so, I mean, without getting into you know, what decisions um, our clients might make uh, about, you know, who to sue in the future, uh, which is obviously their decision uh, to make. I don't, I don't know what decisions they would make. And if I did, and if I did, I'm not asking you yeah, for yeah. information you don't know the answer to and would yeah. be privileged if you did. There you go. So um, without saying that, I can certainly say the same kinds of claims and theories brought against Rudy Giuliani successfully in this case, could be brought against Donald Trump, could be brought against others. And I think, you know, one would hope that the message that would be sent by this case would uh, make people think twice before they uh, repeat those statements again. But uh, one never knows. And I saw, <laughs> I saw today that um, our clients were mentioned in a speech that uh, President Biden gave. And if history is any indication, that means uh, there will be people out criticizing things he said in that speech. And uh, I, I hope, uh, whether it's the former president or others in his orbit, that they are wise enough to not uh, start defaming or character assassinating our clients again. But but if they do, we will be watching and uh, ready to take action if uh, if it's appropriate to do so. So there is another outfit that you have been that so far have not filed anything against. Uh, while you did sue One America News Network, you did not sue Fox News. And in the years of that this litigation has been pending, of course, Fox News had settled a lawsuit by Dominion Voting Systems for nearly a billion dollars or three quarters of a billion dollars. Dominion Voting Systems is a very sympathetic plaintiff. It is nowhere near as sympathetic plaintiff as your clients. And so I'm interested in the question of why Fox got a pass at the time and whether I should, without asking you about your plans, whether I should think of that as a, as a tactical decision or whether uh, they are differently situated in a meaningful sense with respect to the conduct of uh, defamation against your clients than One America and other actors? 
So uh, it's a good question. I think the easiest answer to it is that they weren't involved in um, the kind of defamation that Rudy Giuliani and uh, One American News and the Gateway Pundit were. And I very strongly believe in the First Amendment principles that stand behind things like the opinion doctrine and the uh, media shield and reporters privilege. Um, I do not think that the right answer to disinformation is to sue any news organization that runs uh, a story that repeats a potentially defamatory comment that somebody else may have made. I think it matters if people are reporting or commenting on issues that are in the public interest. And you know, there's a long body of case law around things like the opinion doctrine that I think are really important uh, to having a free press and having vital exchange of you know, issues that, that allow us to have a, a democracy, uh, the, the democracy that we have. So when we thought about bringing cases, we had those principles in mind and we weren't just going to go out and sue anyone that sort of might have, um, you know, played, for example, uh, you know, a, a ton of news organizations published Trump's call with Brad Raffensperger, right? Like uh, uh, many news organizations put that up on their website or played that on the evening news or whatever, defaming Ruby Freeman, but suing an organization or a publisher uh, for putting that online or putting that in the news broadcast has, you know, while that might result in a potentially huge damages number, that's, that's doesn't seem to me or the people I work with anyway, to, to be a good thing to do. Uh, for democracy, uh, nor does it seem to be really fair uh, from the the you know standpoint of who is responsible for really disseminating this material and spreading it widely around. So you know those are some of the principles we were thinking about, Ben. And yeah, so that's that's really interesting. So what, what what you're saying is that you know Fox News may have had some some commentators who said all kinds of expressed all kinds of opinions, and they may have aired the information uh, that Giuliani was making these allegations or played the tape that Trump was uh, in which Trump made the allegations that he made, but they weren't promulgating the allegations themselves the way Gateway Pundit and One America News were doing. Is that is that uh, a decent summary? I, I think Giuliani wasn't even appearing on Fox News by the time you know, by mid-December of 2020, I, I don't even, you know, when the sort of the relevant defamatory statements in our case began, I, I, I don't even think that, I think by that time he had been They banned. were too squishy for I think him. he had been banned yeah. from Fox News or, or his appearances had been discontinued by that point in time. Uh, so it, I don't actually think they were repeating the false, the specific false allegations about Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss by December of 2020. I think they were clearly saying things about fraud in Georgia and things about Dominion and you know uh, lots of things that Fox News was saying. But uh, to my knowledge, anyway, I, I, I don't think we know of Fox News reports that uh, were making these kinds of false allegations about Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. Uh, you know, certainly, certainly the, the, the call um, that uh, the the Raff, Trump Raffensperger call appeared all over the internet, as I said, and that's where the sort of thinking about the First Amendment values come in. Right. So you you just drew an incredibly important gradation, both from a a legal targeting point of view. What kind of news outfits can you w would you go after, and under what circumstances? But also from a you know a a disinformation control perspective, right? Like there's a limit to the strategy that you're pursuing. And uh, the limit is it can deal, it can disincentivize OAN against the most extreme things that it's going to do. But, you know, if, unless you're Dominion voting systems, it's not going to be the mechanism by which you 
restrain Fox News from publishing all kinds of stuff. And so my question is, when when you and the Protect Democracy people, and I do want to stress that we have no involvement in this project at Protect Democracy, uh, when you guys strategize about what you can do with this strategy of using libel law, offensive libel law, as a means of protecting against the intentional flood of disinformation, what what are the things that you think that strategy can accomplish, and what are the things that you think we're going to have to use other tools to address? It's a great question, Ben. There is this is not a panacea. It is a limited tool. Uh, it is a limited tool. And this connects back to the conversation that we had earlier about how I got into this. It's a tool that protects individuals, right? It, it, it is a tool that can be really effective at protecting individuals from bullies, basically. What it can't do is it can't stop the spread of disinformation in political discourse or policy debate. It's not designed to do that. The Constitution doesn't allow it to do that. Uh, we're not trying to bring these cases to achieve that objective because it's just not that's just not possible. So, you know, what what you can go back to Pizzagate, Seth Rich, um, the big lie for each of those. The role that defamation or libel plays is protecting individuals who are sort of scapegoated and brought in and just, you know, railroaded because it's convenient to make these sort of powerless people part of a narrative that is more compelling for television and more compelling for social media. And so in that sense, there's power in it, right? It, it says, no, we're not going to let you do that. We're not going to let you, you know, discourage people from volunteering as civil servants. We're not going to allow you to have more power to your story by giving it this compelling narrative about this individual and the story. You're going to have to make your arguments about policy. And you're going to have to make your arguments about things like the vote count and election results rather than, you know, scapegoating these shadowy figures who are trying to rig and steal everything. But it, it can't, it can't do everything. And it, it's not intended to. And, you know, I think it would be foolish to try uh, to use the, the judiciary or the legal system to do that. Yeah, so let me go back and tick off a couple of uh, things that I think this can't address and see if you agree with me. So if instead of naming Ruby Freeman and Shay Moss, you had simply talked to go back to our earlier discussion of the racial overtones of, of this about how people in general were casing the joint and trading USB drives as though they were breath mints or USB drives as though they were vials of cocaine and stealing votes, but you didn't name anybody and there was no video in which uh, you showed individuals and their faces, this is not a useful tool, right? doesn't matter how racist you are. If you're not, if, if, if there's no individual who is defamed, you're not going to get very far with this. Right. I mean, both for defamation and for intentional infliction of emotional distress, these are individual, these are torts or, or wrongs committed against individuals. So uh, that's right. I mean, there, there is, a, there is a, this doctrine of defamation by implication. So it, it wouldn't be, I think, a defense if you had a video just to say, well, I'm not saying who did it, but the general people in this video were right. criminals. Right, not have the video. If you say there's a shadowy uh, cabal of Jews who's behind behind all this, that's not defamatory, right? There's Jews are too diffuse a category, right? It is not, and it's the kind of statement, for better or worse, that has traditionally been protected by the opinion doctrine. Right. It's not until you name a Jew and make a factually false statement that this is going to be a useful tool. I could go on and on and on, but I just want, I, I mention it only to amplify your point that this is not a panacea and there's a lot of, oh, and by the way, if you, if you merely make claims of highly disinformational claims about inanimate objects, like the vaccine will cause autism. Um, you can't defame a vaccine. 
That that is right. Although, you know, query whether <laughs> false statements about a company's product might uh, might well <laughs> lead to a trade libel lawsuit. But uh, but yes, you can't you can't you can't defame a vaccine. And as we uh, learned in the Seth Rich case, you also can't defame a dead person. Uh, so when you're dealing with a, somebody who's deceased, you need to have a, a more creative uh, legal strategy. Uh, in, in that case, the claims uh, relating to the statements about Seth Rich were about intentional infliction of emotional distress of his family uh, and defamation of his surviving brother. So just to wrap up, I you know, I think a lot of people who watched the January 6th hearings and heard really the most heart-wrenching testimony of the entire hearings was from the two of them. How are they doing? Uh, you know, they they went through an unbelievable hell. How have they emerged on the other end? I, you know, their lives have been shattered by this. They've, you know, they've lost their communities and names and identities and jobs and they've had to sort of start over. But I do think that they are starting to make their way back, not to the same place they were before, but to a different place that can be a good one. Uh, and I think that the, the trial was really important in terms of um, vindicating their, their stories and their truths um, and giving them the opportunity uh, to tell those, it matters that they took the stand under oath, right? It matters they subjected themselves to cross-examination and discovery and did all of that and went and and uh, were vindicated by uh, a jury and, and a court. So I think that they are very happy with how this wound up and I think it has helped, but they, they got a long way to go. They still have, uh, they've still got litigation and then beyond the litigation, um, anyone who heard some of the threats that they had to live with and have continued to have to live with for you know, more than three years now, anybody who listened to any of that uh, material that we played in court or, or read, read about any of it, I think knows it's going to take time to repair uh, what they've been through. Uh, but, but we hope that what happened in December is a really good first step down that path. Well, my Twitter feed has been uh, destroyed by Elon Musk, and I've been kicked off of Twitter. But I will just say that uh, at the time of the January 6th committee hearings, uh, when I saw you sitting in back of them, uh, I tweeted a screenshot of, of that with a note to the effect of, I don't have the exact words because my Twitter account no longer exists, with a note to the effect that this is uh, what a lawyer should do. And uh, I want to leave it there with the note that this is what lawyers should do. And so uh, you're a great American, and uh, thank you for this work and for joining us today. I really appreciate that, Ben. Thanks. Thanks for the conversation, and thanks for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode was me. So don't blame any audio flaws you hear on the good folks at Goat Rodeo. Hey, everybody, you need to do your part to promote the Lawfare Podcast. We don't have a giant publicity arm. We don't have, you know, Hill and Knowlton or anything representing us. All we've got is you. So share the Lawfare Podcast Make yourself annoying at dinner parties talking about the Lawfare Podcast. Be that person who, whatever the subject is, turns around and says, hey, it's like that thing I heard on the Lawfare Podcast. You know you want to be the person who drives everybody nuts by doing it. So just do it. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by the one, the only, Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan, who is out of the clutches of the Chinese Communist Party and is safely in Istanbul. And as always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? 
Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.